The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Prophesying of his son Judah, who, comes, who from then comes David and then Jesus. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning seeing that you have promised to raise up a ruler. You have promised to raise up a triumphant one who will return and make all things right, and from whom he shall hold the scepter, the ruler's staff, Lord. As we meet this morning, would you help us to see something of this triumphant one? Would you show us something in your word about him? Father, would you use uh, my words and, and the word in this very book we open before us to point us to life and to encourage us in life? So, Lord, do these things. Your spirit must work. Lord, apart from your work, we, Lord, we can do nothing on our own. So please, please move, speak this morning, and do a great thing. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, my name is Bryant Strain. I'm the youth minister and an elder here at eFree. Um, several weeks ago, Pastor Jed preached on Mark 10, 32 through 52, and he talked about discipleship and being a follower of Christ. And one question that Pastor Jed asked is, do we know the path to glory? And that, that's the topic that I want to take up this morning. Uh, what is the path that Jesus walked and the path that we must walk to? So we're going to be looking at the text of Mark 11, 1 through 11. Um, but as we set things up here, uh, I'm a big basketball fan, and uh, Perhaps others of you uh, recently enjoyed March Madness. The first Thursday and Friday of March Madness is like Christmas morning. You have 16 games, one after another. You fill out a bracket, and, and things, things all seem good. We're all, we're all seeking after glory to fill out the perfect bra bracket. One thing I also love about March Madness is you have 64 of the best teams that come together in a pool, and and the best and greatest team will come out in the end. And so in that, we have each team uh, seeking, uh, seeking a, a path to glory. We have individual players, more and more so to, today, seeking a path to glory in March Madness. We have coaches trying to cement their legacy during this time. And we as spectators participate in this. And so with this, we see that we, and in the March Madness context, all these teams are on a path to glory. We all desire glory and greatness, 
And that's why sports tournaments can be so alluring to many of us. We're after greatness, the best. It's what we want to be associated with, and it's what we want to identify with. So we are not here today to talk about a path to glory, but we're here to talk about the path to glory. And the path to glory is the path that Christ walked, and by faith we must walk it too. So as you open up to Mark 11, uh, let me give a little background here. Uh, The book is split into two halves. The first half, uh, chapters 1 through 8, surround Jesus' life and his public ministry. And then the second half of the book uh, focuses on Jesus' path to Jerusalem in anticipation of his death and resurrection. And in chapters just leading up to 11, 8 through 10 here, we see this cycle that Pastor Jed preached about a few weeks ago. It's a discouraging discipleship pattern where Jesus three times predicts his own death and resurrection. And in response to that, we see a discipleship failure. We see disciples that are blind and don't seem to understand what he's talking about as they try to grab at glory and power and significance themselves, not hearing that Jesus is moving towards his death. And then in response to that, Jesus provides instruction to his disciples to talk with them about true discipleship. And then the very last section, right before chapter 11 here, uh, Jesus interacts with a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. And this is significant because Bartimaeus recognizes that Jesus is the son of David. And if you haven't spent much time around the Bible or the Old Testament, being the son of David is a significant thing. The son of David is intended to come and rule and reign on earth eternally. So this is a big statement for Bartimaeus to make. And that's, that's what leads us in this passage is, is Bartimaeus uh, follows Jesus along the way to Jerusalem. So today, this Palm Sunday, we're going to look at the event of what's been labeled in most of our Bibles as the triumphal entry. And in doing so, we're going to consider uh, three, three primary features of the path to glory. So first of all, the path to glory is determined. Second, the path to glory is counterintuitive. And third, the path to glory is sacrificial. So the path to glory is determined, counterintuitive, and sacrificial. So let's begin this morning by reading the text. So Mark 11, verse 1, uh, follow along. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside, at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, 
as it was already late, he went out of Bethany with the twelve. So the first uh, feature of the path to glory we want to talk about is the path to glory is determined. And we'll look at this primarily in verses 1 through 6. So there are many things in life that we can feel unsure about simply because we don't know how things are gonna, going to turn out. Uh, just this past uh, Christmas break, uh, my wife came up with this grand idea to take me to a surprise dessert. I love dessert, so this, this was a great idea. Um, so we, we were with family. We loaded up in the car with kids, and it was getting a little late. And so we get in the car. I learned that it's going to be a 25 to 30-minute drive to go get dessert. And so I, I start to ask this question, is this worth it? <laughs> it's late. The kids are going to melt. Like, I like dessert, but do I like it this much? And, and so we, we get in the car, and I'm just internally questioning, questioning and, and probably getting a little negative, which my wife loves. Um, <laughs> along the way, I'm racking my brain for what kind of dessert this could be. And I'm thinking, you know, my, my, for some reason, my mind latches onto donuts because I love donuts. But that's not like a dessert you eat at night. That's, you know, that's how you get your day started. <laughs> but as, as we're going, I'm unsure about where are we going. And it, and it turns out we're going to Riverton. I'm sorry for anyone that lives in Riverton, but that was a drive. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is a waste of time. What good could be out here? We, we pull into a parking lot, and I'm looking everywhere in the parking lot and can't figure it out what, where we're at. And then finally, my wife directs my attention to a little dessert place called Rita's. So I don't know if you guys have experienced Rita's. It's an East Coast thing. I'm not from the East Coast. So I experienced it here. They opened a couple of shops. Uh, there's one right here at Fort Union, off, off Fort Union near, near our house. And it says gourmet fine ice with uh, custard, and you can get this thing called gelati, and they have the two flavors, a peach and pear, which I blend together, and it looks like gross, but it's so good. And, and the dessert was totally worth it. They had closed these ones. This one was a new that opened up, and I didn't know it existed. So all the unsurety and discouragement along the way proved worthwhile. And even though I was unsure, my wife knew the path to glory, if you can track with that. <laughs> and it was set before her, she knew there was a new Rita's in Riverton, which I hadn't heard yet. She had the map. She had the directions to get there. And she knew the joy that would be found when I got there. And she put up with my, my negativity in the process. I should have trusted her and had confidence in this. When it comes to the events surrounding the triumphal entry, we have an even greater reason for confidence than this. So we'll look at two aspects of this. First, let's look at the triumphal entry as a prophetic fulfillment. So the triumphal entry is not just a random event that happens to be a part of Jesus' life. This is something that is of great historical and, and prophetic uh, anticipation as people have been waiting for this. And this event was determined in time past. So the uh, Genesis 49 where I opened, that speaks of that to a degree. We also see this in Zechariah 9 where we see uh, a king humbly mounted on a donkey, descending into Jerusalem. We see this uh, later on in Zechariah as is, is the Messiah figure stands at the Mount of Olives, looking down, essentially going to bring judgment onto Jerusalem. So this, this is an event that has been anticipated for a long time. 
So we need to be careful to not just run past this as if it's some series of events that's insignificant. But this, this is something that God has planned and anticipated for, time, for some time. And so as we look at it, we need to draw our t- attention to the Savior figure, figure and to what this triumphal entry actually means. So as we look at the text and look at it more specifically here, we'll see three details that show that this is set and this has been determined, that this needs to happen. So the first one, as we look at verse 1, we see that this takes place at the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is significant in that it represents a place of judgment. Like I mentioned in Zechariah, it it pictures the the, uh, Mount of Olives sitting just east of the temple. So if you picture our church right here in the mountain range on the east, picture a Messiah figure standing up on the mountain looking down. And this Zechariah, he talks about this as the coming day of the Lord where this Messiah is going to descend on the city. There's going to be a great rift that runs right through the temple, right through Jerusalem, and showing judgment. So the Mount of Olives is also the place where we have Jesus who later gives the Olivet Discourse. This is where he talks about the temple being destroyed and then rebuilt again in three days. This is where he talks about the last days and what it means to endure. So when we see Jesus on the Mount of Olives, this should strike a little bit of fear into everybody and a little bit of excitement, depending on on which side, how you think about Jesus here. So we see that this, this, the fact that this is taking place on the Mount of Olives is, is the first important detail there. Secondly, look at verse 2. He says, uh, And said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So here we see that Jesus has knowledge somehow of an unridden colt. Uh, Mark says colt here. Others, uh, others say foal. Um, the implication is we're thinking a, a youthful donkey is the idea. And, and Jesus tells them exactly where this colt is going to be tied up, at the entrance of the city. And then he gives even more specific details that no one has ever sat on this. And maybe for some of us, we're like, oh, that's, that's going to be a tough ride, right? You know? But actually, this idea is very important because uh, a, a, a young colt, a young donkey in this sense, that has never been ridden, ridden it's meant to be set apart. It, it, to not be too crass, it's like a virgin donkey that hasn't been ridden yet. And so with this, this is set apart for royalty. And so that's, that's the significance of this detail of this, this colt being in this place that's never been ridden on which Jesus is going to mount and ride into Jerusalem. Verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So thirdly, we see that Jesus gives them, he, he, sees a, uh, he foresees an objection. He sees a reason why someone might not comply with the plan. And he tells them to say, the Lord has need of it. And surely enough, if you look at verse 6, it's very simple. They said, and they told them what Jesus had said. And then the people let them go. This, this, is, this shows that th- these sets, this set of events is determined. Jesus has planned this. Nothing is going to get in his way and go against this. 
So these events and these details are so specific that we have incredible confidence that this path to glory is set, that it is determined. These things are meant to happen. So the path is set, but let's think about this from the disciples' perspective for a second. Sometimes, even though it's set, it feels very uncertain. Think about the disciples needing to go pick up a random colt. So has anyone made arrangements to go pick up something from someone's house when they're not going to be home? And then they give you some crazy instructions that in order to get in the house, you need to crawl through a window. Oh yeah, and it's midnight and you've never been to this house before. What kinds of thoughts are going to be running through your head in this scenario? Am I at the right house? What are the neighbors going to think if they see me? Am I going to get the cops called on me? I mean, these, these kinds of thoughts are so human. And, and so with this, it, it's maybe helpful to think, like, what, what kinds of things are going through the disciples' mind as they're walking down this path? He sends two of them to go, to go get this full. And, you know, is it possible or that, you know, you could see one of them just thinking and saying, uh, Jesus said it would be near the entrance of the village, right? And then maybe someone, maybe they have a conversation and say, did Jesus say colt or donkey? Matthew called it a donkey, but Peter says colt. Isn't a colt a horse? Is, are we actually supposed to find a mule? What are we looking for? Or perhaps as they're approaching the, the city and they see the colt laying there, do, they, do we just untie the donkey and walk away? <laughs> or should we ask somebody? In, in the uncertainty, you can feel it. And, and I don't mean to project this on the disciples, but I know as a human myself, if I'm in that scenario and Jesus says these things, I have questions rolling around in the back of my head. Is this sure? Is this certain? <laughs> Can I just take this cult? Is this fine? I mean, Jesus has done some crazy things, but I'm not really into stealing. The law forbids that. But in, in this scenario, we, we shouldn't get caught up on that because what Christ, the point is, what Christ has set before us is, is determined. This is sure to go forward. And so even though life can feel uncertain, we can have confidence that the path is determined. And we see the disciples, as they believe that, and they tell them what Jesus said, everything's fine. The story continues on. And uh, so I, I think it's helpful for us to look and see the human aspect of this. So why, why is this the case? Why can we have this confidence? Well, specifically, Jesus has foreknowledge, and he has awareness of all that is happening here. And also, nothing is going to get in the way of Jesus' path to glory. And if we've read the events leading up to this in, in Mark and in previous verses, we'll see that not Satan, not the disciples, not religious leaders, not circumstances, nothing is going to get in the way of the path to glory that Jesus is walking And then generally throughout Scripture, we're reminded of God's sovereignty, that Jesus has divine knowledge, and he's determined a path, and this is not in contradiction to God's nature. This is not in contradiction to the God that we speak of in the rest of Scripture. So as we think about the path, the glory, and we, as we apply this to our lives, and we know that it is determined, we can walk with confidence, and th this is a great thing. So do you trust that past events have happened in the way that God has, that past events have happened in the way that God has determined? Is, do you trust that that's best, that that's good? 
as you walk your own path, your own path, do you believe that God is working in and through all things? As a kid, every time there was a strong windstorm, I was convinced that a random tornado was going to sweep through and get me. And I grew up in Utah and Idaho, right? There was one reported tornado in, in Provo when I was there. So, and, and also my parents are from the Midwest, so there are some storms. But you want to know the crazy thing? There's a lot of fear. I remember laying in bed, not being able to sleep, hear the wind howling. But as I got older, and some of us, we could say, well, maybe this is just a maturity thing, an aging thing. But as I got older and then believed that God is sovereign and that God is in control of all things, those fears have gone away. And a windstorm comes and you can actually enjoy it and see the power and the greatness of that. And, and also... I can, I can be able to say, Lord, if it's randomly your will that a tornado come and sweep me away, I trust what you've determined is best. That's fine. And this is what the sovereignty of God does for us. So the, the path to glory is determined, and, and this is a good thing. The path to glory, it's, sure to, it's determined, it's sure to happen, and, uh, and we can walk confidently. So this... Now, the second feature I want to consider is the path to glory is counterintuitive. So we're going to look primarily at verses 7 to 10 here. So the path to glory is counterintuitive. So there's two ideas here related to the triumphal entry. We'll first talk about a right perception, and then we'll talk about a wrong perception. So the right perception first. Jesus is rightly perceived as the Messiah coming in judgment. So how, how do we know this? What does the language here tell us that shows that Jesus is coming in judgment? Well, as we noticed before, as seen above, we see the Mount of Olives is a very specific place. We see that he's riding on a donkey that's never been ridden, that, that screams royalty. Um, as we go, we see this scene where, uh, where the disciples are laying their cloaks on the colt. They're, they're sacrificing, they're giving their own clothing for a king. It's only appropriate. As we see, there's palm branches and cloaks that are placed on the ground. This is like an ancient red carpet. And this is done by uh, the, the crowd and the disciples. So we see this idea of royalty, this recognition that as Christ enters and descends into Jerusalem. But we also see a parade here. And, and a parade that's befitting of royalty. This parade surrounding him. And it says, and those who went before and those who followed... The implication here, and Mark doesn't draw this out too much as some of the other gospel writers do, but he says the implication is that people know he is arriving. They're expecting him. They know who he is. This parade is no accident. Jesus' reputation precedes him. And so it's recognized that this is a significant event of Jesus arriving, both in his royalty and the, the reception by the crowds, by the people as he enters the city. And what, what kinds of things are they saying? Well, he says, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now part of this is pulled from Psalm 118, which we'll look at in a second. But Hosanna, this idea, Hosanna, is, is, it's a term of praise, but it also literally means save us, we pray. It's a call for salvation a recognition of a Savior who needs to save. 
Secondly, they say, blessed is he who comes or who enters in the name of the Lord. This one, he is bearing the name of the Lord. He's coming in in the family name, identified closely to God. Next, we see blessed blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, the long-awaited king from the line of David who will establish his kingdom and reign forever. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's coming in judgment. And so to the crowd and to the disciples, everything about this shouts, this is the Messiah, this is the long-awaited son of David. He's finally come to make things right. And he's descending from the Mount of Olives, just like Zechariah told us. He's going to bring judgment on the land, free us from our oppressors, establish his kingdom. This is the expectation here. But let's, let's pause for a second. Have you ever fooled yourself into being sure of something because you want it badly? Perhaps some of you have participated in athletics. What does it take for a team to actually win it all? And we could argue it takes talent, it takes good coach, it takes hard work and sacrifice. When we, th- when we think about the March Madness bracket and one team emerging out of the 64 teams, what is essential for any one of those teams to win it? Well, I'd argue one thing that's essential is they need to believe that they can win and they need to want it. If you don't believe you can win and you don't want it, chances are you're not going to step on the floor and make, and make things happen. But here's the crazy thing about this. You have 64 teams who come in believing this, and it's right and good for them to believe this, that they, and they want it badly. Yet only one team can win. So after a team gets eliminated from the tournament, this is the one, one of the few times in your life that you ever see a grown man rolling around on the floor crying. Why? <laughs> what leads a grown man to roll around on the floor and cry? Well, I think it's in part that they've given their whole life to something, and they've wanted something so badly, and they've fooled themselves into believing that out, this outcome was certain, that this outcome was sure. They're in disbelief that something contrary could happen. And this is especially for buzzer beaters or people who have had a lead and lost it. In athletics, this is good and right, but at the same time, 63 teams leave the tournament every year with misplaced confidence that was never realized. Their belief and desire of something to be true is swept out right from underneath them. So what the disciples in the crowd want so badly from Jesus is for him to come and deliver them from their enemies and their oppression, namely the the Roman Empire at this time. They want him to restore them to glory and to greatness. So while it is true that Jesus is rightly perceived as the Messiah coming in judgment, it is also true that Jesus is wrongly perceived in how he is going to bring judgment. And this leads us to the other side of this, the wrong perception here. Jesus is wrongly perceived in the nature of his judgment. So we must stop and ask the question, what do the disciples and the crowd think is happening here? Somewhat ironically, this event is called the triumphal entry. 
The crowd's expectation is that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to triumphantly and politically enter Jerusalem and take back God's kingdom from the greedy religious leaders and free Israel from the Roman oppression. He's going to deliver judgment on all sinners and establish his kingdom forever. And if you've generally read your Old Testament, that's what it says. (laughs) But the crowd places this expectation in this specific way on Jesus. Think about the disciples and their expectation. It's probably not far off. What happened each time that Jesus foretold his death and resurrection? His disciples seemingly were deaf, and then they got into an argument about who's the greatest and who's going to sit at Jesus' right hand. They're not really concerned about the livelihood and well-being of Jesus. They're not even hearing it. They see Jesus as their own glory, their own gain. And so even the disciples are gripped by something that they want to be true. Glory defined by the world, and as we think about the disciples and crowd here, it says, take the throne now. Deliver us from oppression and suffering now. Make my life convenient, comfortable now. Grant me to sit at your right hand and never toil again now. Jesus could have done this, but he didn't. There's a much greater problem than our momentary comfort and need for relief. Worldly promise for glory is fickle. It's elusive and never maintained, never grasped. Mark portrays the crowd coming and going without a blink. The disciples scatter as soon as Jesus is arrested. Is it possible that you have the mindset of the crowd? Or the mindset of the disciples? Do you identify with Jesus because he seems to be your best shot at worldly glory now? I do sometimes. This is what it looks like to use someone for personal gain. Socially, we do this all the time. We use relationships, marriage, friendships, children, colleagues, all for our own gain and glory. But most of all, We do this with God, and it's damning. Relationship with God is not means to gain, but relationship with God is gain. Everyone is deserving of judgment because we have all exchanged the glory of God for the glory of man, our own glory, our own glory independent of God. We just forget him, or use him to our our own advantage. The the disciples in the crowd don't see their true spiritual problem and need, but praise God that Jesus does. The path to glory is counterintuitive because our hearts are conditioned to seek God as a means to glory, not as glory himself. So what does this mean for us? Because the path to glory is counterintuitive, We must walk with humility. Instead of trusting a heart and mind that live for our own glory and gain, we must humbly and carefully submit our desires and trust God. Namely, that what he is doing and how he is doing it is best. Do you trust in God with this kind of humility? Do you impose your expectations for how things to go? how things should go on to him? 
I'm convinced we need to take a moment and, and realize just how often we do this, how often we use God for our own gain. gain. And this should break us because this is, this is the sin that has separated us from God eternally. This is the sin found in the garden. Jesus is on the path to glory to bring judgment for sure. But on whom will this judgment fall is the question we need to ask. So the third feature of this is that the path to glory is sacrificial. And we'll look at verses 9 through 11 for this. The path to glory is sacrificial. Of the four gospel narratives, only Mark shows some separation of time uh, between the entry into the temple and Jesus cleansing the temple. The other authors have Jesus triumphantly enter, and then he starts cleansing the temple right away. But Mark slows it down, which, which for all the commotion surrounding Jesus' entry, this verse is a little perplexing and makes us slow down and ask a question of, what's going on here? So we need to ask, what, as Jesus is looking around the temple, as he's sitting there, no mention of crowds, what is he thinking? What is he feeling as he looks around at everything? I think it's helpful here to take a closer look at the context of Psalm 118. And it's from Psalm 118 is where we get Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 118 for a second. Um, and so just for quick background, this section of Psalm 113 through 18, these are often known as what we would call praise psalms. And, and these psalms are likely have some origin surrounding events connected to the building of the temple, rebuilding of the temple. Uh, but in Psalm 118, it's been characterized uh, by one theologian as this way, a corporate thanksgiving that celebrates a military victory. And this psalm historically has been attributed to being sung at, at, around, at and around the Passover dinner. The Passover meal. So as we look at this psalm, we see great reason for thanksgiving, but we also see the nature of victory that's going to be achieved here. So go look at verse 22. Uh, I encourage you, if you get some time, read through all of this. It's great. But so, uh, 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Pause. Jesus enters the temple. He knows his death and resurrection are right around the corner. Jesus is going to be rejected. There's no temple party there to receive him and to crown him as king and to get this eternal reign started. No, it's very different. The stone has been rejected, but this stone has become the cornerstone. All of history all of life and purpose is being summed up in what these events that are leading to in Jesus' life and his death and resurrection. All of God's history has been planned to lead to this climax. Go on, verse 23, he says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 25, you'll be familiar with this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Where is the psalm taking place? Where is the blessing coming from? It's taking place from the house of the Lord. 
It seems that as soon as Jesus enters the house of the Lord, the scene shifts. It gets very quiet. He's looking around. And we'll talk more about this. What does he think when he's looking around? But it goes on, verse 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Does anyone catch this language here? Jesus goes into the temple where the altar sits. Days later, he is going to be bound to a cross, carried up to become a sacrifice for our sins. This language is no accident. This language is talking about the true nature of victory, the true nature of glory. And we need to pause and give, on one sense, thanksgiving and praise for this, but also we need to pause and be careful that we don't overlook this because there is life. Life cannot be found anywhere apart from this idea. So as we consider the statement, and when he looked around at everything, this idea of looked around is used six times in Mark. And in a number of these contexts, it's often attributed to Jesus as he's commanding survey of a situation. He's looking around, detecting unbelief. He's assessing, he's scrutinizing, he's discerning what's going to happen next. So what's he thinking, what's he feeling as he's looking around? Luke puts it this way, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Mark slows things down to bring attention to the temple and that this triumphal entry is triumphal in a completely different way than we originally thought. In this scenario, I believe that as Jesus looks around, he's thinking about the rejection that he will face and the path to glory he must walk. The path that encounters his foretold death and resurrection. The path that Christ will be judged rather than judge. On this path to glory, Christ will become our sacrifice, our salvation. The path to glory can only be walked by one man, and his name is Jesus. For this, we must give him all praise and place all faith in him, for there is no other path to glory. Because the path to glory is sacrificial, we must walk dependent on Christ. Do you believe the path to glory is found only in Christ? Where do you wrongly seek after glory? Are you willing to sacrifice all and follow Christ down this path? Have you gotten comfortable in your faith and forgotten what it means to live sacrificially for God and others? The path to glory is a path that must pass through Jesus' death and resurrection. For without it, there is no such thing as life and consequently no such thing as glory. If we desire greatness, we too must also walk the path of glory that is determined, that is counterintuitive, and is sacrificial. And know that Christ walked it already and continues to walk alongside of us. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in one sense broken because we have sought the path to glory in every other way but through you. So Lord, would you humble us and break us and show us our need for glory, our need for greatness, and how that is only found in you. But Lord, would you also help us to believe that this path to glory, this sacrificial path, is the life of joy. It's a life of giving ourselves, Lord. As you, you give yourself and as you find joy in giving, Lord, we find joy in that same way. So Lord, break us of our pride, our independence, but Lord, comfort us is that you walk in that path and it's only through you that we can walk and find true meaning, true glory, true purpose. So God, move us as a church in these ways. Call us back where we've strayed. And Lord, would you glorify yourself greatly in this church as we walk sacrificially with you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.